This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Paganampake Pagan, and on the show today, I'm exploring the miraculous world behind the periodic table of elements. That's right, the periodic table of elements. It is something a lot of you may recall from high school chemistry. It is a memory that may fill you with fascination and fondness, or more likely inadequacy and loathing. Joining me today is author and journalist Sam Keane. His book, The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of Elements is a wonderful look at the stories behind those seemingly staid collection of numbers and alphabets. So Sam, you begin your book with the story of your love affair with science and how it began with a thermometer. So talk to us about that. Yeah, so basically uh, I had a bad run of things when I was about 10 or 11 years old or so. I came down with throat infections, with strep throat, uh, you know, like 10 or 12 times in one year. It was a really bad year. Uh, but I got to stay home from school every time it happened. So that was kind of a nice uh, bonus, I guess, or a compensation for the whole thing. Uh, and every time I did, my mother would come in and she would take my temperature with one of those old-fashioned mercury thermometers. And you can't really find them nowadays. I think they're they're banned in most places these days. But back then we had them. And she would put it under my tongue and she would leave the room to take my temperature. Uh, but, you know, I was a little clumsy when I was a kid, uh, and I was also kind of prone to talking to myself a lot of the time. And so when she would leave the room, often the thermometer would fall out of my mouth onto our hardwood floor, and it would break. And nowadays, you know, that would be kind of a disaster. Like, you'd have to call in the hazmat team and get them to clean it up and everything. But back then, I was just kind of secretly excited that it happened because, I thought this mercury stuff spilling out of the end was like the coolest stuff I had ever seen. It was a metal, obviously, but it didn't behave like a metal. It was a liquid. It was very shiny. You could move it around. And over the years, I broke enough thermometers where, you know, we had a nice little collection of mercury that my mother would let us play with. Um, You know, we kept it actually over the years. And it really got me interested in the elements in the periodic table. And that's really how I got interested in the whole, I guess, the whole uh, kind of field of chemistry was through this one element through mercury. And then especially as I got interested in it and looked into it a little more, I realized that mercury, it's not just an interesting to look at metal, but it also has a very rich and very long history. And it was very important for, you know, science, for alchemy, for all sorts of different areas of history. You see this element popping up over and over and over again. So it was a good mix of it being an interesting element by itself just to look at. And it also had this really rich and interesting history. And so it got me interested in what else was going on in the periodic table, things you maybe didn't learn about in chemistry class. For me, the periodic table has always been this remarkable construct in that the very building blocks of everything that we are, the entire existence of the universe is made up of this seemingly staid collection of alphabets and numbers. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't get any better than that. But of course, one of the greatest stories, Mendeleev's 1869 table was not just this 
great collection of 56 elements, but also he kind of predicted the existence of all the missing ones too. Yeah, that's one thing. That's one reason why Mendeleev gets so much credit as the father of the periodic table today. As I talk about in the book, if you look at the history, there were actually like five or six people who came up with something like a periodic table way back in the mid-1800s, and Mendeleev was actually the last of these people. So it seems kind of weird on the one hand that he's so closely associated with the table, but you hit on the real reason why he is kind of considered the father is because, well, among other reasons, one thing he did was he predicted new elements would be found based on holes where no one had discovered an element that happened to fit in that hole yet. They were out there in nature, obviously, but no one knew, uh, no one had isolated them, basically, is what happened. And Mendeleev not only predicted that these new elements would be found, he predicted the, the properties that these new elements would have. And that was kind of an astounding thing to do, to say that I think a metal is going to be found that weighs about this much, it'll have like a melting temperature of this point and you know it'll have this other property and such and actually when the first new element was discovered that fit into a hole uh in the periodic table uh the man who discovered it published a little bit about some of its properties and mendeleev uh came out and said no i think you're wrong about that <laughs> which was kind of a, an audacious thing to do considering that mendeleev had never seen the metal uh, had never had any contact with it. He was in Russia, and the man who discovered it was in France. So he was thousands of miles away. But he wrote a letter basically saying, no, you're wrong about this. And it turns out that the man was wrong, and Mendeleev was right. And that was really astounding for chemists, the idea that, okay, this periodic table thing isn't just sort of a clever arrangement of elements. It actually has a real predictive power to be able to find out and help us understand new information about the world. So that was really what was important about it, was it wasn't just the arrangement, but the ability to predict new elements and to predict their properties. So tell me about your fascination with the table in particular. When when did your fascination with the periodic table start, and where did that come from? It was just the idea that there were so many different stories out there. We would hear stories from our teachers about, you know, this element and this element. They would just tell us things that had happened, you know, in their graduate school days, or a story that they had heard that sort of passed down like this oral legend from scientist to scientist. And Every element that we talked about in class seemed to have some sort of cool, interesting story behind it. And the other real motivation for me in writing the book was that usually when you're in a chemistry class, you talk about you know, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon. There's like 5, 10, maybe 20 elements at the most you end up talking about on a regular basis. But there were just dozens of other elements out there, like huge swaths of the table that we never, ever talked about in class. And I just thought, you know, I bet there are stories out there about those elements, too. And when I started looking into it, I found that there were great stories out there. And that's what really got me excited and thinking, you know, I, I bet I could write a book covering every single element on the table. And you're right. Even in high school, we kind of covered the far extremes, a couple of elements in the middle, mm -hmm. uh, mainly the carbons and the like. Uh, we barely touched the nuclear elements, and 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 I don't think we even we even knew what rare earths were back then. Yeah, like there's that kind of landing strip at the bottom of the table that it's there. 
Uh, but no one ever talks. Maybe you talk about uranium a little bit or something. But beyond that, you never talk about any of those things. So, yeah, like I just wanted – I was just curious where those elements came from, how they get their names, all of the different things about them. So, Sam, correct me if I'm wrong. The idea behind why those elements exist – on those bottom two rows, is that just a design choice? Yeah, so if you look at the numbers of the elements as you go across, things move left to right. So you start with one, two, and then the next goes three, four, and then it jumps over. So basically, you just move um, number to number as you move left to right in the periodic table. And if you look at the numbers uh, when you're getting down toward the fourth and fifth, sixth rows where the um, – the rare earths start to appear, they could fit in to the regular periodic table like that. But it's just so wide at that point, it becomes unwieldy and it's hard to fit it on an eight and a half by 11 inch piece of paper, like to have it in a book, a textbook, something <laughs> like that. So it, it is a design choice that uh, some chemists made. They said, you know, it doesn't fit well in the book. We're going to change things up. We're going to move these down there. And that's where the modern shape of the periodic table come from. So, yeah, it was a design choice. So, Sam, your book is full of these riveting stories about the elements and how they've influenced world politics and and love and world history. I'm going to I'm going to run through some of these things and I'm going to get you to tell me these stories. Uh, Europium and the euro note. It's supposedly the most sophisticated piece of currency ever devised. Why is that? Uh, europium is one of those rare earth elements we were talking about. And europium happens to form these different compounds uh, that fluoresce under ultraviolet light. So basically, if you've seen a black light poster, um, something like – they're kind of old-fashioned now. But basically, you shine ultraviolet light on it. Ultraviolet light is invisible to the human eye. But when it strikes certain substances, it causes them to glow with visible light, light that we can suddenly see. So what happens is with these European banknotes, they have these designs on them that you can't see with the naked eye. But if you put them under ultraviolet light, all of a sudden these pictures, these other things pop up. And that's very hard to counterfeit because they're very secretive about the types of dyes that they use and what exactly their europium is doing in these dyes and things like that. So they're very hard to counterfeit, and it's kind of fitting that Europe, which is the namesake of the element europium, relies on this element in order to give it this very sophisticated technology. There is this great, there is this great story you tell about a purported CIA plot to poison Fidel Castro using thallium? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that was one of the chapters in the book. A lot of the elements are, are pretty darn poisonous. They're not things that you want around, around you at all. I mean, everyone knows about mercury, lead, uh, cadmium is another one that's pretty poisonous, arsenic. They're actually kind of clustered in what I call poisoner's corridor down there in the kind of bottom right-hand side of the periodic table. But the most deadly element, atom for atom, is probably thallium, which is not a well-known element, but it's very, very poisonous. What it does basically is it takes the proteins in your body and it starts to unravel them, which is really bad news because it just goes around from protein to protein and starts unraveling it. So very, very poisonous at very, very low doses. And it's also very hard to trace. So supposedly in the you know 1960s or so, 
the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency in the United States, uh, decided that they had wanted to get rid of Fidel Castro. Um, the U.S. has always had a very complicated relationship with Cuba. They have not liked Fidel Castro, so they decided they were going to assassinate him. But they didn't want to have something obvious like a gun or a missile or something like that. So what they decided to do was send someone in with this element, thallium, and they were actually going to put it in his socks. They were going to have this powder, <laughs> and they were going to put it in his socks, and then he would pull on his socks. He would absorb this element through his skin, and then he would die from that. And then no one would be able to trace it, and the U.S. would get away from, with the whole thing. And the the what the kind of the bonus, I guess, from their point of view was that the other thing thallium does besides poisoning you is it makes your hair fall out. And they thought it would be especially humiliating if Fidel Castro's beard fell out before he died. So for them, this was a great idea because it was secretive. They would humiliate him. It never really came to pass. I think it was just an idea they were tossing around. But it's, it's kind of funny that they were thinking about using this obscure element for an assassination like that. Closer to home where you are in the United States, there's the story of the U.S. Senate candidate who used to drink liquid silver and it turned him blue. <laughs> yes. There's kind of this big streak in American politics of what we call libertarians. So they're people who want very small government. They kind of want the government out of their business. They don't want to hear about the government. So there's a man in Montana, which is in the mountainous parts of the western United States. It's a big, big state, but there's not many people there. It's a very rugged, mountainous country. Anyway, this man was a libertarian, and he thought that the Y2K bug, if you remember back to that, uh, they thought that all the, yeah, all the computer networks were going to go down. So he was very scared about this, and he thought that all of the government – or excuse me, all of the medical infrastructure basically would go down. There would be diseases running rampant. You wouldn't be able to get drugs, antibiotics, things like that. So he started looking around for ways to strengthen his immune system, and he found out that silver, uh, the element silver, the same one we use in jewelry, happens to be a very good substance for killing microbes. Uh, there's just various things that silver does when it gets into bacteria that's bad for them, ends up killing them. So it's an antimicrobial. What he decided he was going to do was he was going to drink water with silver ions dissolved in it. And then he would have these silver ions in his body. So when Y2K ruined civilization, he would be okay. He would still be able to outlive all of these horrible epidemics that he thought were going to come. So silver will boost your immune system a little bit. Uh, unfortunately, it has a side effect in that it turns your skin blue. And not like bright blue. It's sort of like this kind of dead zombie gray blue. It's really, really kind of grotesque looking. And that's what happened to him. The silver ions got dissolved and deposited into his skin. And he ended up turning, honest to God, blue. And he decided later he was going to run for Senate, even though he had this blue skin. So he ended up getting a lot of attention in the U.S. during those election cycles because he had this kind of grotesque blue skin. And to give him credit, he actually had a sense of humor about the whole thing. It was kind of funny about it, but it was a very strange story. And it's irreversible as well. Yeah, it is irreversible. It's not something that fades over time or you know that you can take something else and it will get rid of it and make you better. He's stuck being blue for the rest of his life.
another element that is incredibly fascinating that you talk about in your book is is antimony. Yeah, antimony is one of the rare elements that they knew about in ancient times. So it's been around for a very, very long time. And it's just one of those elements that pops up in lots and lots of different contexts. Um, eye makeup in ancient Egypt, a lot of the pharaohs and things were using eye makeup. And part of the, it was this black mascara kind of stuff, basically, or eyeliner, I should say. Uh, I don't know my makeup very well, I guess. Um, <laughs> it was this black eyeliner they would put on, uh, and it was based on antimony. Uh, you see it pop up in alchemy texts over and over. So again, it's one of these elements that you don't hear a lot about, but if when you start to dig a little little bit it just pops up in all of these different circumstances so kind of a fun element yeah so newton was obsessed with the sexual properties of antimony what sexual properties did antimony have <laughs> so alchemists had these strange ideas a little bit about the way the world or the way matter was composed on a fundamental level uh, they didn't know about atoms necessarily back then they had all these other ideas and one thing that newton thought was that antimony was a hermaphrodite. That's one of the ideas he had. And it just seems strange today to think about giving elements uh, male, female, or hermaphrodite properties, but uh, they sort of associated masculinity with certain properties of certain metals. They associated femininity with other properties of elements. And antimony, actually, if you look at its place on the periodic table, is over near what are called the semiconductors, like silicon, like germanium. They're not conductors like metals are, but they're not insulators like other uh, substances are either. They're kind of in between. And so Newton wasn't all wrong when he was talking about the fact that antimony does have these kind of in-between hermaphroditic properties. Uh, it's just he probably took it a little too far in making it. It sounded like it sounded like it was almost literal thinking in his case. So not terrible chemistry, but a little weird from our modern point of view. And finally, I've got to talk to you about gold. Uh, I guess it's our enduring fascination with gold as, mm -hmm. as, as human beings. But the first story I wanted to ask you was about the Tellurium gold rush. Yeah, um, gold is one of those elements that we have always been fascinated with, we always will be fascinated with. Um, but I talk in the book about some different gold rushes, including what was probably the weirdest uh, gold rush in history. Uh, one of the elements on the table is called tellurium, and it's an obscure element, not, not a lot of uses, not uh, one that's very well known. But one property it has is that it's able to bond with gold, and it's actually one of the very few elements that can bond with gold. And it's unusual, rare tellurium is, so you don't find it a lot. And there was this gold rush in Australia in the late 1800s where these people were coming across these nuggets of rock that looked kind of golden. And so they brought them into the local appraisers and said, hey, is this gold? Did I find some gold here? And they looked at them and they said, no, it's actually not gold. It's fool's gold is what they thought it was. So they were taking this rock that looked like fool's gold 
You know, they were grinding it up, using it to fill potholes in their roads, using it as mortar between bricks, things like that. They were basically using it as filler in the buildings and the roads around town. Well, lo and behold, that supposed fool's gold was actually a gold tellarium compound. So there was real gold in there. And somehow word got around to these people that, hey, you know, the things you're using to pave your roads here, this mineral actually does have gold in it. So what they started to do was they ran out to the potholes in the street with their picks and their shovels, started digging up the potholes. They started knocking down the brick chimneys in their homes to get at the mortar. Basically, they kind of started destroying parts of their town in order to get this gold mineral out of their houses and their roads. So it was a strange gold rush in that they'd already done the work to build or to dig up this metal. They had literally paved their streets with it, walked around on it for a while, and then went back and kind of cannibalized everything in order to get the gold back out. So Sam, just one last thing. Are we are we done with the periodic table? I mean, when was the last time they added an element to the periodic table? They are slowly adding elements to the periodic table. Uh, the last brand new element added to the table was in 2011. And you have to be kind of careful with the wording there because there are preliminary elements, elements that people think they've discovered, but they need verification yet. And then there are the official elements that have been officially added to the periodic table. And the reason why we have you know, all it, it's all it's very technical work nowadays because the people trying to add new elements aren't going out in nature and digging things up and getting dirt under their fingernails and finding these new elements in rocks and minerals. What they're actually doing is they're creating these new elements in the lab. Uh, They're very intricate, very expensive experiments. Uh, You know, it might take 10 years to find a new element nowadays. And at the end of that, you might end up with like five atoms of it, six atoms of it. So in a lot of cases, no one has ever seen these elements on the periodic table. So they're still adding them, but it's getting very difficult to add new elements. So we still have room to get some more, I think, in there. But there could come to a point where we just don't have the ability to add new elements to the table anymore. So it's still evolving nowadays, but I think the thing that will change is, as I was talking about with aluminum, it'll be more, I think, our relationship to the elements. New elements will come to the forefront as we invent new things or we find new resources, things like that. And so I think really, instead of the table itself, it'll be more about our relationship with the elements. That was Sam Keen. He is the author of The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. Go buy his book. Go read his book. It is absolutely brilliant. And and for The Disappearing Spoon in the book's title, well, it's a party trick. Gallium is a malleable metal easily formed into a spoon. You offer a cup of tea with a gallium spoon, and the spoon dissolves. Gallium having a melting point of just under 30 degrees Celsius, the only metal with anything like this property. You've been listening to Bookmark, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.